Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. As our climate changes, there'll be more extreme weather, so how can we adapt to it? Now, one of the things about changing climate is that we'll get more and more extreme storms, whether that be caused by rivers in the sky, atmospheric rivers creating large downpours, or maybe extreme storm events destroying the energy grid, or even just how urban greening, trees and gardens can help keep our cities cooler in events of extreme heat. Whilst our climate is changing, it's difficult to ascribe individual extreme events as directly caused by climate change, but it certainly doesn't help, and it does certainly mean that they're becoming more and more frequent. So storms like Storm Eunice that just ravaged the UK, aside from making some interesting footage, are serious risks to both person and equipment, infrastructure, you name it. And this is one of the big challenges with extreme weather events. When you have a large windstorm that's more severe than previous, what it means is that infrastructure that was designed to survive an extreme one in a hundred year or one in a thousand year type event with a certain level of factor of safety no longer applies because that one in a hundred year event is now one in five years. And this kind of thing leads to electricity lines being brought down. Now that's an inconvenience for those who have to go without power, sometimes even for weeks, whilst it can be too difficult to rectify the damage while the storm is still occurring, as we had here occur in Australia, in Melbourne last year. Now this is a challenge where infrastructure can get brought down by extreme weather events and wind storms in particular. And it shows the dangers of having electricity wires overhead. Problem is it's normally the way most of these things have been transported. In the winter, it's difficult because you can then have people without heating in time where they severely need it. But in summer, it can be even more dangerous because when electricity lines get brought down in extreme wind events in the summer, it can cause sparking, which can lead to out-of-control bushfires, the likes of which we have seen in California and Australia, to name but a few places where this has occurred. So researchers from Newcastle University have just published in the journal Climate Risk Management a way to better analyse and predict the consequence forecasting effectively, enabling first responders to have some preventative plans in place to help mitigate the damage potentially caused by an extreme storm before it occurs. Obviously, you can't shut down the electricity network every time the wind speed picks up, but you need some way to assess and make a quantitative judgment on the actual risk presented in front of you. And that's exactly what these researchers prepared. It involves researchers like Dr. Sean Wilkinson of Newcastle University's School of Engineering and experts from the UK Met Office, a meteorological office there, EPFL, Lausanne, Switzerland, and other research institutions scattered across Europe. The goal here was to try and develop a framework and a modelling tool to help connect wind speed and storm intensity to risk, particularly for electricity network operators, so that they have more resources before the storm approaches. The mechanism used is similar to the catastrophic risk modelling or CAT method that's often been used by the insurance industry to classify and categorise damage in large-scale events to different types of buildings, for example. But it works by building a big database of assets and combination them with hazards and then putting those together and saying, okay, well, with a fragility curve or a vulnerability model, seeing how this hazard and this asset would impact together depending on different types of scenarios. And this is more or less what the research is based upon. The hazard is, is the weather forecast and some model of the environmental loading, like say a hydraulic model or model of a floodplain or the wind speeds in the region. 
Then you feed in some acid information. Put all that together and you get a damage estimation model, which then you can apply different sensitivity analysis or fragility curves, depending on how much of risk range you want to do. A highly unlikely range or a tighter band range. From that, you can calculate the, the consequence. And that consequent model needs to take into account, well, the demographics, what's usage like, what's the population like in a particular given area. And then you can figure out some actions. But every time you get a new weather forecast and this ticks over again, you can repeat the whole process automatically and you can update the environmental loading model, update your damage estimation, update your consequences. And then even after the damage actually occurs, you can then do an aftermath survey and improve your contingency plans. In this way, the researchers outline a pretty holistic way that moves away from what's done pretty much at the moment, which is that operators of large infrastructure actually know their network pretty well, and, and they'll take their gut feel response. The problem is, their operator's gut feel response of how their area might work or survive in a large windstorm is based on, effectively, their own internal model of predicted past behaviour. So as the climate changes and weather events becomes more severe, well, this model is less useful over time because their prior experience is no longer as relevant as it was before. It's still good, but it's not perhaps good enough for the new circumstances they're facing. And that means you have to go through some pretty nasty learning experiences until you get better at it. And these take time and can be damaging, potentially with deadly consequences, or at least very expensive consequences. So this kind of models are very useful to help speed up that process and give operators of large infrastructure a better tool in their pockets to help them predict. But it also is portable in as much as you can take it from network to network or even from one type of infrastructure to another type of infrastructure in the same city and use the same techniques to make estimates of potential damage. In this way, you can learn from the experience of others more easily, which is not really possible in this local experience type method. In any event, researchers like Sean Wilkinson and Professor Haley Fowler point out in this paper published in the journal Climate Risk Management, we can build these more detailed models to help give infrastructure managers better tools in their disposal to make preventative predictive actions to avoid large damage in the event of these extreme weather events like storm units and many other storms or large weather events to come in the future as our climate changes. windstorms and how network operators can help improve and keep assets safe but one of the other things that's going to happen as the climate changes is that we'll get warmer and warmer temperatures now that's one aspect of it but it means we also get extreme weather events and in different parts of the world we'll end up with different types of weather it's not that everything's just going to dry out it's actually in some places going to get really really wet. And that's what researchers from the University of Tsukaba in Japan have published in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. And first author on this paper was Professor Yuichi Kamae, along with Imada, Kawasa, and Mai. 
all published together at this paper which investigated the topic of atmospheric rivers. Now, atmospheric rivers, as the name suggests, is a pretty unusual phenomenon where you end up with a very dense and concentrated water vapour section in the atmosphere and that they flow along driven by winds in the different layers of the atmosphere almost like a river just in the sky. So imagine this super saturated, super wet area of the sky that then flows along. And when that runs into something, like when a river runs into the ocean while it empties out in a river delta, when a river runs into some obstruction, it sort of can back up and dam up and form a lake. When a river in the sky runs along and hits, well, let's say some mountains that change the atmospheric pressure and lift the clouds up and so on, well, what happens to these atmospheric rivers is that they drop off all of that rain in a huge concentrated burst. Because again, all of that moisture has been collated into this one little river channel area so that when it gets blocked, well, it's going to go down and go down it does. It leads to some pretty spectacular and extreme rainfall events. Now, these can happen in places where you have really large mountain regions. And particular areas around the mid-latitudes where you get the atmospheric rivers occurring and also steep mountain regions. Now this occurs obviously in Japan, one of the reasons why these researchers from Japan were studying this topic. Also occurs say in the Himalaya and Nepalese mountain ranges, but you also get them in North America and even in some places in South America like the Andes mountain ranges and even Europe. When you have this water coming flowing through in the mid-latitudes and then running into a mountain range and dumping out, well, that's where you get this event occurring and it can be pretty spectacular and devastating when it does. The thing is, when you look at the historical record in the last decade or so, there have been more and more of these extreme rainfall downpours occurring. Now, of course, when you have a large amount of rain dumping in one place at a time, that causes tremendous flooding, which can have huge impacts, obviously, on not just the people and the infrastructure in the region, but also the environment. It can lead to lots of extra runoff and overflowing and flooding of systems and rivers and so on. As the climate changes, we're expected to see more and more of these phenomena occur. So understanding how they behave is really important. So these researchers dived into simulations of meteorological data from 1951 all the way through to 2010, and then did forecasting from all the way up to the year 2090, with the four degrees of temperature warming scenario being modelled. And what they saw when they did this is the future simulations predicted lots of strengthened water vapour transport and increased precipitation. And what that means in practice is more of these atmospheric rivers forming. And as a result, way more rain forming in these really mountainous regions, creating way more downbursts of rain, especially in East Asia, the area of the study of this model. So of course this might happen other places, but what they were looking at was in particularly focused on East Asia. And that's what they were studying, particularly the mountains in Japan, in the Korean Peninsula, in Taiwan, even Northeastern China. And the greatest rainfall that they found would have occurred in the models when the slopes of the Japanese outs on the southwest side. Now as I said before, this research was focused just on East Asia, but it applies to many other regions that would have similar mountain ranges in the mid-latitudes. But what this goes to show is that with a small amount of warming, 4 degrees, which is actually a reasonable scenario of where we may end up, by the year 2090 we will have significant amount of these events occurring, and they will result in way more flooding than we've seen in the past, which has already been pretty bad. Now, understanding the way in which our weather will get worse in many ways and change is really important. In many ways, climate change will lead to just that, 
change and sometimes quite precipitous amount of change in certain aspects of environment. It's not all going to be mega droughts and super fires. Sometimes it'll also be super floods. That's the thing. Everything just gets that little bit more extreme. So understanding how this may lead to more rainfalls, particularly in mid-latitude regions and where there are large mountain ranges, is really important because it can give people time to understand and better prepare for increased flooding and ways to deal with this type of event occurring. Great research published in the journal Geophysical Research Letters about the impacts of atmospheric rivers and what we can have to look forward to in certain regions where there's a lot of mountains around the mid-latitudes. climate change we're often thinking about the way in which climate on the earth is influencing our lives but it also goes the other way things that humans do things that we build things that we create can impact the environment around us and the climate literally around us now i'm not talking about emissions i'm talking literally about the buildings the roads and the other objects in the built environment that can actually have a substantive impact on let's just say the heat or the moisture in the area and one of the things that can happen, particularly in urban areas, is the urban heat island effect. Now, this is a pretty serious topic where it makes events like heat waves way more serious because the concrete, the building materials absorb a lot of the sun and the heat during the day and keep radiating that back overnight, raising the temperature of the environment in that area from what it would otherwise be if it was more densely greened. Now, that is also goes the other way too, where you can get flooding, which occurs as part of urban stream syndrome, where city structures, roads, highways, train tracks, or other barriers block and affect the natural runoff of rainwater back to the environment, which then causes more flooding in the event of a case of severe rainfall. So these two urban effects on the environment around them are a pretty serious topic. And researchers from Cardiff University published in the journal Nature. A couple of ways where researchers investigated the ways to improve, basically, these two pretty serious impacts. Measures that can reduce UHI, urban heat island effect, and USS, urban stream syndrome, would really help people and the people living in these cities as well adapt to the changing climate. Now, what the team looked at was they used global climate model outputs and weather information from 175 cities across the world, and they took around 15 years of daily observations on the period from 2000 to 2015. Now, this data was then used in conjunction with theories taken from soil scientists to calculate water infiltrations in soils, because water infiltration in soils is a really good way to measure rainwater runoff and also a way to measure the evaporation of water from plants, which is a good way of measuring basically the cooling effect of a, like a green space. So one of the things that happens in this urban heat island effect is you have a lot of concrete and steel scattered across the environment. And while this is good, it retains and absorbs this heat. And that also heat then leads to plants basically drying out and you get a lack of evaporation of water from the plants uh, and this sort of cooling off the effect by basically the temperature being lowered by the green stuff, soaking in some water and then releasing it when it heats up, creating a sort of a cooled environment. 
So by measuring the soil, it's a really good indicator of both the runoff problem, which is the flooding problem, and also the heating problem. Now, what the researchers found is that well, while greening and planting lots of trees and gardens and other features actually helps mitigate flooding, which is good, and it does limit heat by actually adding extra cooling into the environment, it's not automatic. And, and in some areas, according to researchers or like leader of the study, Dr. Martha Cuppert, it's not even possible. Local and regional climatic conditions significantly impact the capacity of urban soil and plants to grow, to simultaneously defend against flooding and extreme heating. And what that study found is that in many cities, even if you put wide-scale urban greening, it won't have been able enough to mitigate sufficiently both cool and prevent flooding at the same time. And this is because really it's just not possible to plant enough trees while still having enough cities and infrastructure to really mitigate climate change completely. But it, it certainly helps, just doesn't fix all problems. And the problem is, it really depends on the type of technique that you use. For example, and a common urban greening method is not just planting trees in your garden. If you're not fortunate enough to have a space to plant them in, well, sometimes you can cover a roof in a meadow or with greenery, shrubs, grasses, you name it. And that's a really useful thing to do. But the problem is that requires soil. And generally, you don't like dumping meters of soil onto your roof because that would be literally burying your house or apartment building. So tending to actually have a thin layer of soil to support just enough the trees or the shrubs or the grasses that you plant on this green roof. That's really good because it can help reduce heat. That's great. But it doesn't do that much for rainfall and, and, and runoff. And the problem is, with too much heat, that thin layer of soil doesn't actually give you enough protection because that thin layer of soil can bake itself and thus not provide any cooling effect because the soil just gets too hot to support life and everything dies out in it. In a deeper root system on an actual literal ground that has a bit of advantage there because the soil itself can hold more water and also hold more cooling which means that you've got a better chance of survival you'll know this if you ever tried to plant something in a really shallow pot compared to being planted straight in the ground so urban greening is a really useful strategy to help mitigate some effects of urban heat island effect and urban stream syndrome but not sufficient to actually fully mitigate completely climate change and it should be viewed as such as a tool to fight back but not alone sufficient enough to protect us the researchers from university of potsdam Katja Schmidt and Ariane Watz also published in the journal One Ecosystem are a study comparing the impacts of these urban greening effects. And they can have a number of positive impacts. It's actually pretty important, not just for the environment, but also for the people living around them. And what they did is they looked at a multimodal approach, looked at local climate measurements and habitat and tree mapping, and they compared four green residential courtyards in Potsdam. All of these spaces were similarly built, but they all had different sizes and shapes and ratios of lawns and flower beds, paths, playgrounds, and they also had different trees and different shrubs. Now, what they did is they saw that each of these green structures had different benefits, amounts of benefits. The green of the courtyards yielded more benefits, which is pretty much makes sense, and trees in particular were really, really useful, up to 11 degrees of temperature drop cooling effect they're actually able to produce by having the right trees in one of these courtyards and of course you know trees also play an important role in helping sequester carbon back into the soil so again this is a pretty useful thing 
not having trees is not necessarily a deal breaker. Other urban greening techniques also helped, but the one, one of the most effective ones in providing just a bulk amount of cooling they found was trees. So since urban greening has a positive impact and improves people's local climate, you definitely should consider doing it if you can, planting more trees and trees that are appropriate for the water use in your area. Something that's native species to the region probably has the best shot at surviving a change in climate and may need less water than another species from maybe an exotic area. Plus, it will probably help the native ecosystem. But in any case, if it's even just having some small shrubbery, greenery and flower beds, all of these things contribute to lowering the general temperature, which in around your house will certainly help in the extreme heat days. So urban heat island effect is a pretty serious issue. So is lots of flooding and runoff. And having lots of green spaces in urban environments can help. Just we still need to do more to help prepare for the changing climate. There's two papers, one published in One Ecosystem by authors Schmidt and Waltz. The second published in Nature Communications by Cuthbert, Raul, Ekstrom, Carol and Bates. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From urban heating and cooling with gardens to the way atmospheric rivers can form and dump large amounts of rain and ways to better protect our infrastructure in the events of changing climate. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.